Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Well, 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 Slava, how are you? We are back, and I am doing okay. It that sounds is a confident. Bright, yeah, it is a bright, chilly, undisclosed moment of the day and week in which we're recording this. And, uh, of course. I'm doing just fine. Uh-huh. It, changes, it changes his story over here. At least he's the funnier one of us. I pretend to be. Mm-hmm. Would you like me to tell you a story about strawberries? Would you, pl- would you please regale us with such nonsense? Don't, actually. No, don't, actually. No, don't. It'll this be is... no. 20 minutes out of our already hour-long podcast. Yeah. Any highlights this week? Not particularly, man. Not particularly. It's been since we uh, since we started this, and I started this new job. It all kind of melts together, maybe give or take a month. There's usually like a week or two of, like I said a, a few episodes ago, of little things every day, just kind of keeping you busy. And then there's the week or two of wrangling feral cats. This week has was pretty easy. Just uh, plugged along. What about yourself? Yeah, just keeping toward moving this um moving this event that I'm throwing together along, which is good. Yeah, I haven't been in the gym, haven't hit my I'm trying to get down to two hundred pounds. Like can't can't break through like two oh five. But I'm also like not changing my diet entirely. I did, but then I didn't. It's just a whole thing. Yeah. So not hitting my goals. I'm not hitting the the fitness goals, but yeah, life's pretty pretty keen right now. I got you, man. Yeah, I've been dutifully working out every day for for a while now, about a month or so, which has been great because nobody needs to tell this to anybody. Nothing by now should be public or common knowledge. Excuse me, that working out in the morning or doing some social social. My goodness, I can't speak English. Yeah, doing some social in the morning. Doing some social. Yeah, everyone does that. Grab their phones. Exactly. Yeah. No. Put your social down. And do some sort of physical activity for at least a half an hour during the day. Walking, running, even light cardio sets you up for the day. Not that I needed a reminder because in my 20s, I used to run actively, work out once or twice a week. Like serious workouts, not just, you know, I'll go to the gym and lift, you know, 10-pound weights for 15 minutes. So felt good then. Starting to feel better again. I like it. Working out is good for the soul. Good oh, yeah. for the soul. So after we read uh, Stormlight Archives, Slava's going to have me read some Russian literature. He said we can start with something called the Communist Manifesto. That's <laughs> a it's a great cyberpunk <laughs> dystopian hellscape novel. It's it's a prelude to dystopian hellscapes. Uh, I heard it was a prophecy book. Yes, anyway, yes, it was. We don't have to get into that. A prophecy that lasted for seventy years. Hmm. Mhm mhm mhm. Uh all right, let's dive in. Let's get let's uh we're in sort of this middle section where things are just simmering in the way of kings. We had some 
two episodes ago we had some more action and now it's kind of like all right we need to get some more threads in the story and the world unravel a little more of the questions that are happening with dalinar adolin kaladin and we talked about this last time i think where we said shallan was going to pop up again because we just haven't seen her in a hot minute and so of course she's going to come into these new chapters and Last episode, we stopped with Bridgeford getting chasm duty, and Kaladin shows his men what he can do with the spear and gets them all to shut the hell up because they're like, oh, he's probably not a real soldier. And then he just hits a trance and they go, oh, okay, uh, we were wrong. Of course, you know, they're Bridgemen, they don't say that. Well, and I realized what the word I was looking for was a drill. He goes through a drill, like a spear oh, drill, yeah. and shows them his uh, his skills. Makes sense. Makes sense. So we start twenty eight and uh, chapter twenty eight with Dalinar and Adolin, and this is going to be the only Dalinar and Adolin chapter because cutting up the book was a little difficult on my first time through cutting it up. Because so many things happen, and it's it really is like a movie, in my opinion, where you're jumping around, and, da, 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 da. and I mean, you and I only have so much time, because we have day-to-day lives and stuff, so getting right. through 10 chapters a session before, or 10 chapters per sprint before the next episode that we record is a little challenging, and that said, we're here with Aelin and Dalinar, and it comments on chapter 28, where... Adolin is being kind of thrust into leadership, and uh, he's... Yeah. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, for sure. So Delinar, he's going through a thing. He... What kind of thing? He seems to be... He wants to step away from his leadership post. Mm-hmm. And he sees that Adolin is good with the men. The men respect him. He does, you know... The checks well, he leads them well, and he sees that maybe, possibly, and I'm thinking that's maybe because he was outmaneuvered in the previous chapter and he's going to be somewhat outmaneuvered in this. He's like, all right, I think I need to let Adeline take my place, and I'm just going to go back to my lands and relax, which is a 180 from where he was a couple of chapters ago where he's like, what do these visions mean? I need to unite them. How do I do this? How do I protect the king? How do I protect my children? How do I maneuver, you know, the political waters uh, Mm -hmm. of this war camp, which is like a de facto kingdom now because of this unending, you know, ridiculous war. And Sadius and the other high princes, he was processing all of that in the previous chapters and thinking, okay, this is how I got to do it. He's looking at the chessboard. He's making the moves in his head. And it seems to me, as a first-time reader, as soon as he gets outmaneuvered pretty heavily by the king and forget the guy's name, as always, he seems to have a, a change of heart or, his, or at least a change of strategy. And he's like, Alan's going to be in front. He's going to take my place. He's trained enough smart enough and dedicated enough to do it, I'm going to peace out. And he wants to think about it. He's like, I'm going to think about it, but probably by end of this time, whatever that's in his head, he's like, I'm going to abdicate and leave. So he's going through a thing. Yeah. And part of his thinking in all of this 
he takes a little a little siesta, if you will, throws on his shard plate, and then digs a latrine. Which is a interesting uh, little event, because he's thinking, and I forget how this got introduced, but he thinks to himself, can't shard blade and shard plate be used for more common mm-hmm. efforts, for more common uses? It's great to, you know, cut Prashendi with it, and it it helps in war, but what if the common folk can use it to do their mine. jobs easier? Yeah. Do their jobs easier, right? And he's he's wondering about the Knights Radiant and how okay, they were these interesting people, but but uh and they had these powers and these weapons and this armor and stuff, but where is the service to the people? And so he's thinking right. about that in terms of the weapons and the armor. But it's really this deeper question of, well, why why are we serving the people the way that we're supposed to be serving? Which is the way that a king should act, unlike the king is acting. Exactly. Yeah. So where does authority come from, right? Mm, yeah. So as yeah, as, and he's thinking about this as he's digging this latrine, and I have a quote here highlighted: "As Galner continued to work, beats of his hammer throwing the chips into the dust." He easily did the work of 20 men. Sharp play could be used for so many things to ease the lives of the workner, workers and dark eyes across Roshar. So he's asking himself, where were the shards for ordinary men? Like these wise people who created the, these, these shards, why did they think of others besides themselves or besides the bright eyes, light eyes? You know. Right. Yeah. Well, and one of the questions that comes up is, so Dalinar is under the belief that they made these weapons, right? Yeah. And far as we've seen and heard, no one has... Well, so there was this glimpse of something that was said earlier in the book that they are working on creating shields that can defend against shard blades, but they're early in the discovery stage still. It's like one line. That happens earlier in the book. I don't know if you remember it, but vaguely. Now that you bring it up, yeah. So it's this idea of there. There's this lost knowledge that if these are created blades and creative armor, created armor, then how did they do it? And they don't know. They they don't know. So Dalinar's under this presumption that they are created items because I mean you create blades, you create right, you know, shields and arrows and other stuff but we there should be some some lost well there should be some ancient texts that dictate hey this is what the blacksmith did and then it became the shard blade and da 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 so yeah and could that be since it's covered in this uh section could that be what Jasna is searching for in Teravangian's library Carbroth yeah the palinam well no, and that's just... Yeah, all right, so your dad gets assassinated, right? Your dad is king. He gets assassinated. Uh, I mean, she might stumble upon it, maybe, but uh, that's not... That's certainly not her direction of scholarship. Yeah, direction of scholarship at this moment, as far as we know. Okay. Right? Like, you, your, your father gets assassinated, and then... The people he was about to make a treaty with are like, yeah, we did it. And you're like, what? 
So, I mean, she's left with a lot of questions, which is an interesting place to be for someone who's so, I I want to say non-emotional, but Yasna can be emotional. It's just not, it's, it is the same way that she is with everything else. It is under her control. So I, I do look forward to a time when Yasna does lose her, <laughs> lose her control, control over her emotions. Yeah. I don't. I am trying to think if any of the other books have something like that, but I, I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, go to my assumption from one of the previous episodes is that Shalon will be unsuccessful in her attempt to steal the Soulcaster, and to your point now, connecting the two, maybe that will per- precipitate Jasna's uh, undoing, uncoming. Emotionally, mm-hmm. so, so we'll see. I want to I want to deviate here real quick. Do you think that Sanderson will kill any of his characters? Yeah, we'll we'll get into that. We'll get into I that do. later. Okay, I do. All right. Yes. Well, because I read another Sanderson book where there were people killed. There were main characters. Mm, rip. Yeah. So yeah, why not? Let's kill some main characters. Make it a sad story. All right. Okay. Let's move on to these interludes. They're, they seem out of place, right? Is that fair? I I want to know how. What's your take on these? Um, I guess so. I don't know. They're interludes. Run me They're through. You're just... not connected to the rest of the story, but neither were the the first set of interludes, right? Not directly, at least. So the first one is Risen, and she is helping, or she's a ward, or an assistant, or something to that effect, of a merchant. And they are waiting to meet the Shin, which I've heard that name before in Sanderson's work, I think. So I'm wondering... Zeth is Shin. Hmm? Zeth is from the people of the Shin, Shinovar. Right. That too. So so we see in the, in the Risen interlude that her Bapsk, which is like her, yeah, her mentor, right? Yeah. Uh, who is a tradesman, a merchant. Not tradesman, a merchant. Although merchant, I would say that's probably a trade in, in Roshar. Uh, he mentions Zeth, not by name, but he actually does mention him. He's like, hey, do you have any more of those servants with the oath stones? And they go, no, we, we couldn't have even we couldn't have even sold them to you because that's the culture. They they trade in a very specific way. So, You're right, yeah. So anyway, Risen and her mentor, they meet some Shin, and they do an exchange. And the thing that stood out to me was Risen's reaction and thoughts on the soil and the grass that's in this part of the land. It's different than what she has experienced, I guess, with grass and plants and soil. And so there's this little exchange of goods of goods between the Shin and um, her mentor and Risen finds them a little bit odd, but her mentor says, well, they're not odd. They're just different than us. And, you know, they're actually good people. And then it kind of ends on her going and grabbing enough to fill a pot of the grass that she was uh, exploring in the beginning of the interlude. And just kind of ends there. So the just a very, very simple, seemingly out of place, as you said, mm-hmm. interlude. So, uh, I have to double check this before I say it, but one of the reasons that it seems weird to her is that the 
land that she's on and the Shin themselves, I don't know if you remember Zeth talking about the heresy of people who talk who walk on stone. Yes. So their their culture is and then even in a I think it was his interlude actually here, where mm-hmm. he questions like, well maybe walking on stone is okay because these people don't have grass. They don't right. have No, soil. I made that connection. I was gonna bring it up when we got to his interlude, but yeah, absolutely. I mean it's all it's all tied together here, so so yeah. go for it. Yeah, no, 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 no. Perfect. No, it's all good. Yeah, so the the grass and the ground that she's walking upon, is it no different than, you know, regular grass and ground and soil? Or is it so different that it, it confuses her? So I guess the question here in my mind is, are these people, meaning Risen and her mentor, do they only walk on stone? Is there, like, a lack of grass and soil because of the high storms or because of just the the area they're from and how does that tie into Seth's culture or the shin culture do they not have any stones anywhere like that just seems interesting and s sanderson does often he just writes something in and you're kind of left wondering and oh okay well that's kind of a an odd thing or a or an interesting part of the culture that he's describing yeah it's Fun to see the very short stories unravel where it's like, oh, what does this mean? And then it's just another connection. Oh, okay, so Risen's Bapsk is part of the lineage that held Zeth as a servant in his Oathstone. Interesting. Okay. And it doesn't sound like he did anything malicious with him, but just that he was the initial person who did get Zeth as a slave, uh, a servant slave, Oathstone servant, truthless, and then kind of released him into the into the world here. Yeah, and it's, if he's the best servant he ever had, why did this guy trade him? Sometimes you don't know what you have before it's gone, right? I mean, have you ever had that oh, in fair. life where yeah. you life was really good and then something changed and you went, oh, damn. That was actually a lot better than I thought it was. Yeah, no, no, that's that's fair. But my, uh, again, my curiosity is in, in the weeds there. Like, what happened? That Was it just a convenience thing? Ah, I'm done with you. Well, I don't need you anymore. Or was it something else? Because if truthless are the bottom of the rung, and maybe that has something to do with it, or maybe Zest's unflinching loyalty and uncompromising obedience duty i i guess yeah to, Culture, to his duty, duty yeah maybe that was like all right guy um you're great but you're kind of weird maybe, is that what happened but in any case whatever happened zeth got traded he did and you're saying that the, this guy was the first one to own zeth or was he just part of the line of owners he's the first person to own zeth outside of the shin from from okay. what we read, where okay. he says, uh, you know, they talk about, I don't have the, the Kindle book in front of me, but they talk about how he says, you know, do you have another one of those servants? And they're like, no, he was truthless. Like, we couldn't sell him for anything be- because of what their culture believes and, and holds fast to. So, All right. So, the, so that interludes ends, and then we get to Axie, Axie's. the collector. Yeah, what t- yeah. What, do you, what is this all about? What is this guy doing? Well, apparently he's studying Spren. In very odd ways. 
Uh-huh. And I found this this interlude funny. <laughs> it's so different. It just pulls you out of everything else going on. There's this war and these people fighting and bridge forward. Da da da. And then you got yeah, I got drunk trying to find ale spren. I think I saw him, but I'm not really sure because I was because drunk. I was drunk. Yeah. Yeah. And then when he wakes up naked in the alley, he says blight it all. So that's uh, a different type of swear than we're used to, right? Or yeah. curse word. So that was like one of the things that immediately tells the reader, all right, this is an interlude within an interlude almost. It it's completely different than everything else we have uh we have read. And his interaction with uh like the homeless guy in the alley who's yeah quite obviously insane is very, very funny. I mean I, I like Do you it. know do you know many homeless people who are normal? Nothing against them, but you don't usually end up there without some sort of peculiarity. This guy, um, this guy has built a kingdom out this of guy's uh, garbage. Different. This yeah. guy's a different type of hey, insane. Uh, one man's he... trash is another man's treasure. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, and he uh, he does have the finest alleyway in Cassiter. Yeah, so that's that's good for him. But yeah, so this guy, um, Maxie the collector, is studying Spren, and. He has this memento thing going with him where he, like, writes what he knows or what he collects, the information he collects about uh, Spren. He, like, tattoos on himself or writes on himself. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, he wakes up naked, talks to a crazy person, steals the crazy person's, or he doesn't even really steal it, but he gets the crazy person to give him a blanket to wrap around himself because these people in Cossiter don't like naked people walking on their streets. They're, they're particularly ups, get upset about it. And so he's walking around with a blanket and getting some stares, but he seems to be getting out of his predicament. And just as he's, you know, collecting his thoughts and figuring out what's going on, and okay, Spren, you know, what am I going to call him? These Spren that come out when you're drunk, okay, I'm going to call him Ale Spren. As he's going through his little, um, little thing. Little thing? Little thing. As he's going through what he has learned, or thinks he's learned while he was drunk. Some guy runs up to him, rips the blanket off of him. He's left naked in the middle of the street, and <laughs> the guards come and arrest him. He's like, all right, well, I've been arrested before. Sounds like so, Vasher. Yeah, exactly. Funny, Vasher thought. Well, maybe Vasher should be uh, should be clothed more often. Maybe Vasher should be hunting Spren. Maybe that. Yeah, so he, he gets arrested and taken to you know the city jail, I, I assume. And that's where that one ends. Would you read a short novel about this guy yes. wandering around looking for Spren? Does He's he remind funny. you of anybody else in the story we've met? Does he remind me in The Way of Kings? Yeah. He reminds me of Wit. Okay. I didn't make the connection, but I can see it. Right? Just like yeah. kind of peculiar, not in a bad way, but peculiar as in knows exactly where he's going, but for himself and other people don't necessarily. So he just, I read it and I was like, oh, this kind of reminds me of Wit. Yeah, well, his interaction with, with the crazy homeless guy, he just play, plays with it, right? He just goes right along with the crazy guy's right. ramblings. And right. like, I'm, so, oh, uh, that, had a, that head of rotting cabbage was the god's uh, temple. I am so sorry I slept on it. That is, that is, yep, my bad. So I killed a family of four. What? I, I love it. So moving to the next interlude, which is called The Work the of work Art. Of art. With Zeth. That is a good one. So Zeth's son, San Villano, Truthless of Shinovar, has now a better master, 
and he's back to killing. And by better master, I mean he does this master doesn't make him pour beer in his head and cut himself. So uh, that's true. saying a lot, actually. I, I guess. Well, so true. yeah. So he goes to kill a competitor of Maquek, who owns, I guess, like a an ale house or a gambling house. Yeah, he's been like collecting. He wants to be his own little town lord for the gambling dens. So he goes to kill this guy's competitor, and he gets to the room where this guy's supposed to be, and there's a mysterious man there who's already killed the guy and killed Maquek, and tells Zeth, like, are you uh, you happy what you're doing there, buddy? You know, just killing uh, for meaningless, killing without a purpose, basically is what he says, and shows him that not only has he killed his current master, but he has the oath stone and tells him that your new master, our master, wants you to go on a couple of missions and you're going to kill these guys. And Zeth realizes, oh, I'm in a bad place because these guys know how to use me properly. And the men that they're going to get me to kill, this is going to cause wars and strife and upheaval in the land. Yeah, it's about to get so we've seen some action before, but now we're starting to see, oh no, someone has released a demon on the land by taking control of Zeth. We saw him kill Gavilar in the prelude or the prologue. Yeah. We saw we've seen him just endlessly following his orders, regardless of what they are, outside of his two you know, he can't give up his shard blade, and then he can't kill himself. So things are about to get spicy. Who do you think owns Zeth at this point? Like, who who just have we met this person? Is it someone else? Is it is it the person? Is it one of the people that Gavilar mentioned in his pro uh yeah prologue? He said, "Did so and so send you?" The only thing I have highlighted is Glories. Zeth thought these are some of the most powerful people in the world. Six high princes the king of Jacoved. And so then he's, the figure tells him, this man, it's time you stopped wasting your talent. So that's all I had highlighted for my notes. So I'm not sure. It could be somebody that we've met or that was mentioned in the book. Maybe it was the people that even had Gavilar kill. They certainly know about the murder. The Parshendi. Yeah, well, I don't think these guys are the Parshendi. Or maybe they are. Because who knows? Came back um, to get their really great weapon that is yeah. death. Because the Parshendi could have taken credit for this because they were working with whoever this guy is, this master who's now in charge of Zeth. So there could have been a connection there and the Parshendi took the credit because it suited them or they thought it suited them. Right. But I don't know. I don't know. I think I think I'll I'll go with this. Well <laughs> I'll go with this answer. I think that we haven't met them, but they might have been mentioned in the book already. Interesting. But that's all I got. So, like, they've been mentioned, but we haven't been shown the connection. Right. Hmm. Either that, or they haven't been mentioned, but there is a connection, like, you... Here's here's what I'm going to say. They haven't been mentioned, but on a second read-through, our reader could go, oh, that's Mm -hmm. the connection. One of those little... Yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll go with that. I mean that's a that's a fair. So we we sorry go for it. 
No, no, you you go because I was gonna I was gonna segue to the next part. So oh, okay. I was gonna say that's a fair, that's honestly a fair assessment, and even maybe a cop out where it's like, well, I believe that Sanderson maybe threw in a line here and there that on a second or third read through I would notice something. It's like, it's a good answer, but I just I I'm like thinking about it more. Like, I mean. You could say that about everything and be right oh, sure. half the time. Yeah. It's like saying in uh, history class, what's the answer to this? George Washington. And 50% of the time, you'll be right. Yeah. No, that's fair. It, and it is a cop-out to some degree because I don't remember if the if anything was mentioned in what I read so far that makes the connection. Having some sort of semblance of how Sanderson puts together stories now being three books in. I can see how it's just a throwaway line somewhere that I missed, but gun to my head, honest answer. I do not think we have met these people. This is some a new, an introduction of new characters in the book. How about that? I'll just that's that's my direct yeah, that's, answer. That's fair. All right. Yeah. On to Shalon, so, huh? On to Shalon. As the interludes end, we get into chapter twenty-nine called Error Gants, and we are back with. Our buddy Shalon, and she is now a couple months into, or a couple of weeks into her wardship, and she seems to be enjoying the wardship. She's learning things. She's getting her academic, scholarly itch scratched, but she's constantly battling the other side of her, which says, "Hey, you're not here to learn history. You're here to steal a a soulcaster and save your family." So. She's going through that in her head. Then there's this uh, Ardna that comes by that keeps trying to convert Jasna and is really bothered. Not that I, not that I believe him, uh, but really bothered by Shalon's proximity to Jasna, mm-hmm. and he's worried for her soul and he wants to make sure that Shalon's okay. But uh, he's a bit insufferable. So you don't like Capsule. Nah, he he remind you of way. people you've known in the past. Yeah, he he <laughs> he is annoying. Slav, I'm I, just there's something about sure. him on that, that annoys me. Slav, I'm just here to make sure that your soul is okay. Yeah, I don't want you and to follow I, and the I passions. Find, yeah, I I find his arguments as somebody who's went to seminary and is a Christian. I find his arguments for the existence of a deity for irrespective of what deity you're arguing for. Mm-hmm. I find his arguments lacking. That's part of the story. I understand it. I'm a big boy. I can think in abstractly, and I can think in categories, thank God. But <laughs> just him, like his whole his whole being, right? And this goes back to what I've said so many times now. I like how Sanderson writes characters, and this guy, I just don't like him. Right. And it's not like I hate him. Like Why? he's not, you know, he's not skeevy or anything. He's not a bastard. He's not like Gaz, right? He's, he's not, not like, exactly. Yeah, he's not, he's like not skeevy. But but why do you not like him? What what is it about? Let's 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 unpack this character. Like he's not a main character, right? But he's clearly relevant to a main storyline. Yeah, I found I I don't find him authentic, and I know that word gets thrown around so much in our modern context. Like, are you authentic? Are you genuine? Like, well, yeah, people like authentic, genuine people, duh. Hmm. As I read his interactions with Shalon, especially in this 
the section of the book. I'm like, dude, you're just, you're weird. Is he just trying to sleep with Shalon? Are they allowed, are Ardents allowed to bed their uh, congregants or people? <laughs> allowed is a, is a weird way to put it because just because someone's not allowed to do something isn't going to stop them from doing it. Oh, fair. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think there was a line where Shalon's like, and it, it's one of these, you know, small pieces that just kind of, oh, yeah, and then you read past it. But it's something like, she started to see him as a romantic interest, and she's like, but they can't do that. And then she, like, moves on. So yeah. the answer well, is Shalon, no. Well, though, right? We, yeah. yeah. She's not a very confident character, as is. But just curious on your read for Capsule for, you know, what it, whatever might unfold between him and Shalon or whatever. So I don't know enough about Capsule yet. What, what I see is I'll give him this. Here's what I'll give him. He believes, I believe that he believes what he says he believes. Okay, that's I'm not, fair. I don't, I, I don't think he's some sort of just a, like Yasna you know, believes creeper. what she believes. Yeah, yeah. So he he he's convinced conviction? of his position. Sure. Is that conviction? Okay. Yeah. So he's convinced of his position, and he's doing what he's doing because that's what you do as an artnet. That is his job. That is his duty, and he's doing what comes naturally to artnets. What he's been told to do. His devotery being one of the smallest, so he even admits, yeah, we try to recruit more than others, even though that's kind of frowned upon because we're really small. Uh, and that's our job as Ardenance, to care for the people of the Almighty. I believe that he honestly, that that's his honest opinion. He he really, truly believes what he says. Just the way he comes across, kind of weird. Well, I, yeah. I find it a little bit insufferable. And again, I, I'm probably being triggered by people like him I met in real life. Yeah, I, he's, a, he's a good character. Like, he's a, he's a well-written character, right? Sure, right? absolutely. Because especially from from your history of going through seminary and meeting folks like this, it's just like, and it doesn't even, it's not even like specifically Christian, but like in every religion, you meet somebody oh, yeah. like this and it's like, well, this is, this is a, um, not a stereotype. I mean, I guess I, you could call it that, but just like, I would almost call it an archetype of the zealot, like a zealot archetype, right? Yes, yes, because I've met more than just Christians in my seminary experience. Well, maybe more, and... maybe less a zealot. I feel like zealots are a little more dogmatic and authoritarian in their actions where they take physical action upon heretics. So maybe zealot is too much. Sorry, keep going. So, yeah, and I've met Muslims like this. I've met... Jewish folks like this. I've met, you know, New Age, whatever. Uh, I met, all, yeah, all sorts of people in my life, pre, during, and post seminary. Whether it was where they were religious, a religious. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Whatever the hell that means. What whatever stripe of that, you know, you fall into. You always have this archetype. It's, that's that's a good word. You always have this guy or this gal that believes wholeheartedly is convinced of their position, which is not wrong. I'm not saying that being convinced of your position is somehow uh, better than just, you know, being a lackluster. We can't know anything ever. And it's, it, that's the great part of life because nothing matters. Like, shut up. So, like, he's convinced of uh, his position. That's great. The way he goes about interacting with people, ugh, do better. Do Slava's wisdom for today. Do better. Yeah, there's a there's a psychologist that I like who one time said, 
sometimes you try your best and you did do your best and it wasn't good enough because your best is not your best is not always good enough you can do your best and still fail because you need to grow in that area whatever i think that we we see that both in our lives and in the lives of some of these characters where they they try their best I, shoot, this might happen to Shalon. She's trying her best right now. She's doing the impossible compared to her very sheltered upbringing. And her best might not be good enough. She might, just like you said, fail at what she's doing. Yeah, and I like Shalon. Shalon Shalon's a character I like. I'm going to start a list of characters that you like that may or may not be relevant to main storylines. Just Siri. Please do. Shalon. Okay. You yeah, also like the- Nightblood. Night, yeah, Nightblood's my man, or whatever. <laughs> he He's a sword, or she's a sword, but I think it's a he. Type 4, it's, it's, cognizant, be, what is it? I'm going to look it up. Siri and Shallan, those are two two characters out of Sanderson's three books that I read that I really like. That doesn't mean that I hate the other characters, but they're the ones that I'm, I'm like. Just I'm just really interested. you. I'm really interested in their story more than the others. Like, I know a couple of episodes ago, I said, I'm interested in Cal's story. I want Cal to, I want to know everything. And that's still true. But the more I get a glimpse into Shallan's brain, I'm like, all right, I want to know where this girl is going to go in the story more so than anybody else. And you can hassle me. I'm not, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not crying about the hassles. Type of investiture. I can't remember. I want to say it's a type four, but there's like, and honestly, I, this is one of the things I love about Warbreaker is it's the end of the book and then Vasher goes through this very scholarly breakdown of investiture. And honestly, that's relevant to the rest of the Cosmere. And you should like take note of that. His Me breakdown. personally or our listeners? Everyone. Or both. If, if, yeah. And this is honestly why I believe that Warbreaker is the book to, to step into the Cosmere with. Because it lets you go both directions. It, it's, it, it's good enough. It, Sanderson's writing is mature enough in Warbreaker for you to go, oh, this is fun. But then you read The Way of Kings, and Warbreaker technically happens after The Way of Kings, but it's on a different planet, and so it's kind of irrelevant. Well, to your point, I was interacting with somebody online, and the the OP was asking advice for kind of understanding the Cosmere, and I told them, start with The War of Kings. At least I told them that's where I would start, because it's a good baseline. Then I told them to go copper mine the net and where there's heavy spoilers. Yeah, it's a type four biochromatic entity. I was close. So type four entities, Nightblood in particular, are sentient objects made by awakening inorganic material like metal or stone. So type four entity. Very cool. Anyway, back to the way of kings and Shallan. Yeah. What else what else does Shallan go through in her her arc in this section that we're covering? Give us uh, some more synopsis. Well, she talks to her. Uh, she talks to her brothers via Spanreed. Spanreed, thank you. Which I found fascinating, just as a as a technology. It almost feels like sci-fi. That's yeah. There's a sci-fi element to it. Like, yeah, it's definitely fantasy though and magic at the same time because you have like special paper, or special spread, or special quills. Anyway, so she talks to her brother, uh, one of the family members, non-blood. Of family members, non non from the from the house is dead. That's not his name though. His name begins with an L. Oh, her oldest brother? No, no. Somebody died in the house, and it wasn't uh, wasn't the, one of the brothers. It was 
Oh, you mean the... Yeah, whatever his name is. Anyway. Yeah, so he dies, and he's the only Lamarill. one that knows... No, Lamarill, there you no, go. No, 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 that's... Lamarill dies, too, and good riddance for that piece of crap. Um, Yeah, that guy. Luesh. He dies. He dies, and he's the only one in the family in the house that could use a soulcaster. And as soon as he dies, people come by and start asking for the soulcaster and start asking for about the dad, kind of indirectly. It's like, hey, your dad, you know, he's, you're right. Okay, he's traveling or whatever you're telling us. We really need the soulcaster, buddy. Mm-hmm. So the brothers tell Shalon that, well, a brother tells Shalon that things are getting real, things are getting dangerous. We need that soulcaster. And so that's another uh, moment in Shalon's. Uh... So, yeah, so Luesh dies. The guys who own the soulcaster have popped by. Nonvalot says they're dangerous. And then he makes a point to draw a symbol. Yeah. Yeah, that he saw on one of their thumbs, and also Luesh had a pendant of the same symbol. Right. What is this about? Yeah, so there are things that their dad was involved, obviously, mm-hmm. that were probably at least uh, illicit. Well, I don't want to say illicit, but they weren't. Um, they were the. They were not on the up and up. <laughs> uh, he he was involved with some folks. It's obviously their soulcaster, or at least it seems that way to me, because why would they care if if he still has the soulcaster? Yeah, why if would it they was, care? If it was his. How would they if know? It's his, how would right. they know? So this guy uh, who's dead, Luesh. Mm-hmm. Clearly not a cheap device either, a soulcaster. Right. That Luesh is the only one in the house who could use it. Was he a plant? By these people, was did the dad know he was a plant? Mm. To what extent did the dad know what he was involved in? Was he was just a was he just a, doing it for the money and uh, didn't care? Uh, again, to what extent did he care? Not care? To what extent did he know or not know? Something's going on, and the people who seems this way to me, the people who obviously were in, heavily involved in whatever her dad was doing and most likely gave him the soulcaster, have realized something is up, and they came back and said, all right, we need the soulcaster back. You know, again, me uh, reading into it, making an assumption, you're defaulting in your bills, haven't heard from you in months. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us the soulcaster back. We, we, we're done with this nonsense. Right. So that, you know, lights a fire, I suppose, to some degree, under Shalon. And now she needs to up her game or up her efforts to get the soulcaster. And at the same time, she goes back to what she was thinking before. Like, I really like studying. Uh, Jasna is good to me. Mm-hmm. All this stuff. She, she's enjoying her life as a ward because she sees the benefit to her. This wardship is good for her. But she's not there for the wardship. She's there to steal the soulcaster, and then towards the end of this um, this part of the story, Shalon ha- has a moment where her conscience starts eating at her. Can she yep. really steal from a person that's been this good to her? Yeah. And despite this person being a heretic, she is a good person. She is good to Shalon. She right. is not the witch that people have made her out to be, even if she is blunt and sometimes could be abrasive. 
she is fair. She is stern but fair, Shalon mm-hmm. says. And so how could I steal from this person who's been good to me? Like, is it worth saving my family to do this deed? And so Shalon is struggling through Let's go through on a this. side quest here. Because yeah. we we all encounter folks like this where regardless of how you were raised or brought up, you meet folks that are outside your belief system and culture and ethics and et cetera, et cetera, your, your set of values, and they are the other, right? Tribalism runs deep in humankind. Uh, tri- for those listeners, tribalism would be the idea that you're, there's an in crowd and an out crowd, and your crowd is the in crowd, and the others are the out crowd. One key example of this would be slavery in America. Like, oh, whites are the in crowd and blacks are the out crowd. Another would be the Sunni and the Shiites. The, you know, whichever one you're born into is the in crowd and the other one is the out crowd. Um, so on and so forth. Another word for it would be clannish. Like people act Clans. clannish. Yep. So even within the tri- tribal, within tribalism, you will have your in and out, in and out groups too. And nobody, nobody outside that clan, that family clan is allowed in. Right. So I bring this up because we all meet people like this. We are the in crowd and other people are the out crowd. How do we deal with that? How do we, you know, Shalon is dealing and wrestling with her upbringing. She's being trained by a heretic, according to her beliefs. And she's realizing, you know, this person's not as bad as I thought. This person isn't, isn't as bad as I was told she was. She's actually very fair and very kind. And now she's like the crime she was going to commit against her when she saw her as a monster because she was a heretic. And we do this where we make the other into a monster because then it justifies our actions against them. We do this to prisoners too, where, oh, well, they're a monster. And it's like, yeah, uh, they did actions that were monstrous, but they're still human. And, and this like speaks to human depravity. Uh, Charles Manson, right? Like, key example who did monstrous things and so people i want him dead whatever i think rumor had it that he became a christian or something like that where he turned his life around or whatever but like okay this person's a monster and so it it if you go deep enough down this rabbit hole you could start to ask questions like is the death penalty valid as a consequence for someone's monstrous actions but is it ever okay to turn someone into a monster? Hitler, another great example of someone who did monstrous things. You know, when does humanity become monster? And what do we do about people like that? Because someone like Shalon hasn't killed anybody, as far as we know. And, you know, sorry, Yasna. Did I say Shalon? I think I said Shalon. Yasna. Yasna hasn't killed anybody, as far as we know. And so it's like, she's a monster in the world according to culture because of religion. But Shalon is having this... this moment of conscience like you said where it's like she didn't do anything to her she's been very kind she's a wealthy woman who took under her wing basically this podunk girl who was wealthy in podunk town but like clearly not wealthy i think you're talking about Dahmer. the rumor is that Dahmer became a believer was it Dahmer? manson yeah manson was was never okay something like that i thanks so right here here's what it's a, it's here's a big side quest it's a big yeah yeah it's a big one so here's my uh Here's my two cents. I agree with you. And I'll I'll share a story, a conversation I had. So when George Floyd died, because he was killed by the cops in Minneapolis, St. Paul? Yeah, Minneapolis or St. Paul. It was in Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. So I had the conversation with a friend of mine 
And he dismissed it as just, well, fecal matter passes, man. He was, you know, he was a criminal and he was on fentanyl. And I was like, I'll give you that. Okay. How does that excuse the actions of the police officers? Right. Yeah. Personal responsibility still applies regardless of, you know, other people's actions. Yeah. You know, I am not opposed to the death penalty, but I am opposed to treating criminals irrespective of the level of their monstrosity or monsterness, to make up a word, despite the level of their crime, the punishment should be executed, no pun intended, the punishment should be executed well, right, with some dignity. And I know people will get, you know, sand in their britches because they might be so ardently against the death penalty and there's there's discussion there. Whether you are in prison or you are on death row or you're being arrested, outside of very mitigating circumstances, you should always be treated like a human being. Just because you're arresting a criminal doesn't Mm -hmm. give you the right to just, you know, take a couple of baton shots to the face. Well, you know, right. Just for kicks. And people do that. It's not like that doesn't exist. Yeah. 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 Sorry, not Soren. Don't at me. I don't care. So I want to try to make this question, this this side quest harder. So the Nuremberg trials, right? There's a line. There's actually a line that internationally we have drawn in the sand that when crimes against humanity happen, that is when someone becomes a monster. That's That's how I would read it, right? So for those not in the know, the Nuremberg trials, I'm going to really summarize this. So feel free to add me in the comments if you want to like dive into it because I bet you know more about it than I do. The Nuremberg trials happened after World War II. World War II? World War I? World War II. World War II. So Hitler, the Nazis, Germany was defeated, and they rounded up all of the Axis representatives who were defending Nazi Germany, and they put them on trial. The Allies, the people who won the war, put them on trial for crimes against humanity. Because, if you didn't know, They were doing experiments on top of just Holocaust camps. They were doing experiments on people and things that, if you read, were atrocious. Like, I think it's Sector 731 or or something like that that happened over in, it was like Japan, China during World War II as well that we stopped, which is another horrific thing that happened where they were doing tests on people. But the Nuremberg trials happened. It, It was proven, and then this line in the sand got drawn where we started to say, hey, this is this is the line. Humanity is defended by a legal shield that if crimes against humanity happen, we can do something about it. And then to me, I that said, to me, that makes it say that if you cross this line of crimes against humanity, where you have enough power to commit crimes against humanity, because I, I think that, that there's an underlying state that you have to be in to have the power to commit crimes against humanity, in some, at least at this, like if we're using this as a data point, then that's when you become a monster, which which is why I think that Hitler could be labeled a monster or Marx or Mussolini or, you know, a lot of these other people who had power who literally committed crimes against humanity because of the number of folks that they killed and the way that they did it, if you will. Now, I'm, I'm making a bunch of broad strokes here, but... Yeah, so what's the what's your question? Was that was just a... Well, so... I started off by proposing that when we turn humans into monsters, 
we dehumanize them to justify our actions against them. And then I, I do agree with what you said about personal responsibility. Like, it doesn't matter if he was on fentanyl. The, the variables of circumstances do matter to a point. However, as the person in power, it is your job. And Dalinar shows us this well, that when you have power, you are supposed to lead by servanthood. Period. Like, that's your job. It doesn't mean you don't make tough calls. It means that you're supposed to serve the people. Uh, which is why when we see him hacking away at this latrine and he's literally shoveling shit, you know, or what, well, what soon will be, like he's doing the job of a quality leader. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of find the question to make what you've said harder where it's like, okay, there is a line for someone becoming a monster in, in international terms, but I have lost my question. Let me jump in and maybe you'll, you'll, we'll come back to you. I think we have to be careful about categories because how I might feel about somebody I disagree with politically mm -hmm. is different than what I feel about Hitler or Stalin or Jeffrey Dahmer or the Atlanta monster, mm -hmm. uh, one of the few black serial killers like who killed little boys in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. um, so different categories, right? So... Shalon having having animosity towards Jasna, who she doesn't really know, but mm -hmm. just based on religious religious uh, convictions, let's call it, she sure, finds sure. Jasna uh, Jasna at least her beliefs objectable. Yep, right. Like, and Jasna as somebody who is does not deserve maybe respect for denying the Almighty. Mm -hmm. That's different than the allies coming together and saying this is the line that we're drawing. This is what makes you a monster. Or even the crime itself, you know, somebody who rejects their religion in a culture that holds the religion at the center of everything that they know and do is different than somebody murdering 11 million people. And that, to me, that's different categories. And without objective truth, without objective truth, who the hell cares then? So, yeah. So you take the rabbit hole and, and we won't go down this sub side quest at the moment, but that's a fair point is who is to say... I think it throws the Nuremberg trials into this this gray area. If you don't agree that objective truth exists, then how can you stand on an argument that has validity to object to someone's actions? And right. and that's actually like a philosophical state. I, I want to bring us back to the story because I've, I've taken us down a very long side, side quest here. But I, I would agree there's a line between Crimes against humanity and simply choosing not to be a part of your own religion anymore in the culture that you were raised in. But bringing it back to a softer question, if if I can, is how do we how do we grow in curiosity, which allows us to make space for the people that are the yasnas in our life, where they're the out crowd. They're well, that does that's not what we do in our culture. It's like yeah, but they're not they're not a a, a monster who's committing crimes against humanity, even if you might feel that way. Because they haven't killed anybody. They haven't, you know, taken power and done experiments on them, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I think from from a Christian perspective, you know, or a Judeo-Christian perspective, however you want to slice that, understanding that your fellow human being has worth, right? Yeah, that's that's part of the objective belief system and foundation is that human beings are made in the image of God and therefore they hold value. Right. So if your fellow human being who you disagree with has worth and you find what they teach or what they believe to be wrong, 
that's okay. And I know that sounds like, you know, like dad talking to a five-year-old. That's really okay. Well, we have we have to do that today. I, I think we really, like, the, there's things that are happening in society that are just kind of nonsensical. And part of that is that we aren't allowed to tell people they're wrong anymore. And not and, and I'm not taking a stance on, on what is right or wrong at the moment as much as, like, if you can scream, I want tolerance, and then on the opposite side when someone says, well, I don't agree with your level of, your threshold of tolerance, and then you get upset with them, like, that's just common discourse, you know? Right, exactly. And you you hit it the nail on the head. Like, when you dis, it's okay that somebody has a different opinion than you. It's okay that somebody you like is blue, of a different I like green. religion. Okay, cool. Right. Yeah, it's okay that somebody has a different religion than you. And I have a Muslim friend who actually, now that he pops into my head, I haven't talked to him in a while, but I have a Muslim friend, and he knows that I'm a Christian. I know that he's a Muslim. We talk theology all the time. He believes that I'm in the wrong. I believe that he's in the wrong. Yeah. We're still friends. We have lunch. We banter. We talk about our wives. He tells me about his kids. We are genuine friends. Mm-hmm. And we had a we went out to lunch once with a uh, I think you told me this a story. coworker. Yeah, yeah, we went out to lunch once with a coworker, and we're just we're not even talking religion. But the coworker who is a religious his self-designation. He just found it so interesting that we both could be such good friends uh, despite being two di- from two different religions. And he said, so do you guys believe that you worship the same God? And without missing a beat, without missing one beat, we both said at the same time, no. And it really took him for a loop. And, you know, and we we're just like, no, but that doesn't change anything. Like both of our religions tell us, inform us that the other guy is made in the image of God, has worth, has value, and it's my duty to be a friend to him, you know, whether or not we want to convert each other. Like that that's not even the conversation. Like this is right. you know, that was part right. of the that was the part of the conversation that was happening was that's not the deal. We're not friends with each other so we can convert each other. We're friends because we found common interests. We get along well. We clicked when we met the first time and we just stayed friends. And when we when the conversation does go into the religious realm, we argue, we debate, we push each other, we, you know, philosophically and theologically, we push buttons, we we try to get at the bottom of things, but it's all done with respect and nobody cries, nobody hits anybody. It's just two guys. Yeah, public discourse. Yeah. Public discourse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, coming back real quick, and I think I'll end with I'll I'll end the side quest if you don't mind with this is Yeah, yeah. If you treat as Shalon, if you're able to see Jasna as a fellow uh, human being, as a fellow Rosharian, and understand that, like, oh, okay, yeah, she might be absolutely wrong for being an atheist, and her abrasiveness towards the ordinance is awful. But you know what? She's still a decent person. At the end of the day, she is not pulling legs off live animals. To bring, you know, like, I know, ha, 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 but... Well, there's a guy. Uh, there's your brother. Shalon. That's your brother, right? Right? <laughs> right? Himself. Right? You know, he might believe in the Almighty, but he rips Almighty's creatures' legs off while they're still alive. So just treat human beings who disagree with you with the same, you know, respect that you'd want to be treated with. And I know it sounds so silly. Like it sounds like you know the the, the dad podcast. Make sure you're nice to the you know to the weird kids in school, Johnny. I think we need I think we need the reminder though on a regular basis. I you know I'm not exempt from this. Sometimes I can get in my own head of superiority because, it, and I know you said you were going to end the, the the side quest here, 
Sorry, but no, keep, let's keep going. So it's you know we all live in our own heads. We all believe that we are part of the in crowd of the tribe, and as like this is why I think that humility is so important because humility reminds you that we're all human, and we can disagree, and it should you should hold to your convictions. Like that's a good Absolutely. quality to have, uh, regardless of what they are, whether you're Yasna or Dalinar or Shallan. Like you should hold to your convictions. However, based on what we've just uncovered. If Shallan pulls this off and steals the Soulcaster, then Shallan is actually the one committing a wrongdoing here because Yasna has only been kind to her regardless of her religious beliefs. Right. Interesting. Right. And that's and you said something interesting just now, and I, I want to underscore it. You should be confident in what you believe. You should do research, whatever that looks like. You should be able to argue your position. And if you are very much opposed to another position and you are able to have a discussion or have a debate with that person, you better know their position well enough to argue against it and not a straw man or, a, or you know, pull a red herring in your, in your argument. You have to know other pe- where other people are coming from. The only way you know that is by interaction. And again, that research, whatever that looks like. But be confident in your belief. Don't be an arrogant prick about it. Mm-hmm. But be confident in your belief, because if you don't know, if you, if we really don't know anything, well, then shut up. Then <laughs> go go get your eggs box. That's honestly, this is one of the reasons I love epistemology. Is that and, leave the and rest of anyone, us alone? Yeah, and for anyone in, in, uh, unfamiliar, epistemology is the philosophical uh, study of the beginning of knowledge. So, like, why do you know that two plus two is four? And so you you pick. You can literally start anywhere. This is this is this is what's fascinating to me. You can start with any belief. Well, I know that the sky is blue. Okay, why? Well, because of this reason. Okay, but why is that reason true? Because of this reason. And you literally just keep going backwards, you know, until you reach an end. Yeah, yeah. What I learned in seminary that was uh, very foundational for me was everybody has a worldview. And everybody makes assumptions and works with presuppositions. So a religious person automatically has presuppositions that there is something outside the material world. A non-religious person has the presupposition that there is nothing outside the material world. And with those two presuppositions, both look at the same evidence, pieces of evidence, and come up with wildly different conclusions. Now, that doesn't mean that a religious person doesn't believe in gravity and a a materialist, I mean, a a religious person doesn't believe in gravity and a non-religious person really believes that gravity exists. That, that's all fifth grade rock throwing and, you know, he said, she said, you're dumb bullcrap. We're going to test out gravity that's, today, kids. Pick yeah, up a rock. Some unphilosophical, unintellectual nonsense. But everybody has a worldview, and that worldview is comprised of three things, epistemology, metaphysics, and ethics. Epistemology is knowledge, study of knowledge. Metaphysics is study of reality. What do we know to be true? And ethics. What do we do with, this, with these data points? So... That informs everything you know and how you will look at the observable world, tangible and intangible. Tangible meaning that, that rock that fell off a, fell off a cliff, you know, that's, that's a tangible. Intangible, immaterial things. I'm talking about logic, math, all that kind of stuff. How do you interact with those things and what conclusions do you come with? So everybody has a worldview and everybody has presuppositions that they, they're just there. And a lot of, 98% of people, I think, don't even know that they're there. And that's maybe maybe less, maybe, I don't know. But a lot of people don't know that they're there. So when they come to a political point of view, 
or they come to a religious point of view, or they just believe something like a cultural thing that they believe is this is the way we do it in America, this is the way we do it in Poland, whatever. They come with those things, that baggage, to everything that's in front of them. And without knowing that thing, you are going to be making the mistakes that Shalon is making here in the beginning with assuming that Jocelyn is just, just garbage. So I'm going to use this as a segue over to Kaladin. So what do we do when we are raised by someone like Liren who believes that you can never take someone's life justifiably? I would say that Liren probably believes that there is no just war. I think that that's probably, probably. a fair, sounds fair like assumption. It. And yeah. so then you have Kaladin over here who it was, you know, raised with the trade that is surgeon. Um, so he has the skills of medicine. And then he also got raised in the tradition of war for some years before he is finds himself as a bridgeman. And now he is trying to... And what was the line um, from some earlier ca- uh, chapters where he said, I'm trying to go back and find the man that I once was or whatever it was. And so he has to take those two different versions of himself. And sometimes I like to cut my life up into versions of myself because, frankly, the person that I was when I was younger in, some, in like living in New York and whatever, is a different version of me than I am now. And I understand the world differently for, for better and worse in different, uh, different categories. But Kaladin is wrestling with, okay, I'm trying to save my men, but... If we give a broad synopsis here of what happens to him in these chapters, in this section, he practices his bridge runs with his men. He creates a new tactic that they use and a new strategy that they're going to try. Gaz starts scheming to try to get uh, Kaladin killed. Kaladin has a flashback of having conversations with his dad when he was drunk. And then Kaladin grabs another bridge member who is Lopin, who's one-armed, which that doesn't seem super helpful in running a bridge. And then... It culminates with them trying to run the side carry that they'd been practicing in a couple chapters. And Kaladin saves his men and gets a bunch of other people killed. Like 200. Yeah, like a bunch of people. And then he's strung up to die. Like Kaladin now has to live with the consequences of his actions. But like when you're at the bottom rung of society and survival is your only goal. Is that justifiable? Is it justifiable to do something for survival that ends up being a consequence for other people to get them killed? I don't know. I, you know, yeah. One, would you steal a piece of bread to feed your family? Right, right. That you know, is it that? Um, Do you ever watch the Twilight Zone? Long time, ago. long time ago, right? So the black and white. Yeah, when it's I was an a kid, old yeah. show. I honestly, I think that that did a lot for society. This is a hot take, a little bit, maybe not a hot take, but. It presented story, sorry, it presented ethical dilemmas through story that people had to think about in, in, in weird ways. And there's this, I can't remember all the details for the episode, but philosophy has one of these same questions. Is it, is it better to kill one person or cause one person harm to make the lives of a thousand people better, right? Like, it's a question that, that those of us who like to intellectually jerk the gherkin, like, want to to think through like well what what are those thousand lives doing afterward is the is the one life you know not creating a cure for cancer and like we create all these thresholds and stuff but but i think it's actually a lot simpler of a question like is one life more valuable than another i don't know 
Well, I don't think it is, but if you're going to- So you hate Kaladin? I do not hate Kaladin. Okay. And here's the thing. I think it's based on the information that you have in the moment where you're making those decisions. So if we're going to use that old philosophical, uh, hypothetical question train, where- The train trolley? The train. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, one guy or 10 guys. So can I just pause for a second? Like, let's do a little- uh, I just want to explain this to the listeners. So the train trolley experiment or ethical dilemma is- you are standing on a train track and you are standing next to the lever and you see a train coming. And if you pull the lever, you will veer the train away from the group of five people that are tied up on the railway and it will go to a sub track where there's only one person. That's the that's the premise and kind of dilemma that we're we're talking about here. Anyway, continue. Yeah. So if you look at that, I think it well, let me back up. So back to my point. You should be judged, for lack of a better term, on the information you have at the moment you're making that decision. And those kind of ethical dilemmas, they're good to get the, the brain firing, but at the end of the day, it's a hypothetical, and it doesn't account for other things. If you're forced to make that decision, and only that decision, that assumes that there's no other options, there's not a way to call the conductor there's not a way to put a flag or an obstacle on the course warning the train. There's no other options. There's no like telephone next to the lever. And there's no alarm bells. And I'm a guy who worked for an organization that did training on trail derailments. So fine. If we're going to make this hypothetical, let me add some reality to it. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of other options. So just like that, the other real descriptive hypothetical. Yeah, I know. That other hypothetical where there's, uh, you know, four men and they're all touching an elephant and they're all blind. And see, we don't know oh, anything. Oh, perspective. One thing's, yeah. yeah Trunk, like, leg, yeah, tail. Yeah, yeah. It's, still a, it's still an elephant and they're blind. So why are we trusting them? So these ethical dilemmas, this philosophical, you know. <laughs> the blind leading the blind. Uh, this philosophical uh, hypo- uh, hypotheticals are great. I don't, I'm not poo-pooing them at all. But there's always, there's always more than just that. So what do you know at the time of the decision that you're making? So does Kaladin really know that he's going to kill 200 plus people? No. He is doing the right thing by saving his men. Maybe he is ill-informed because of his lot and position in life at this current moment in it. And so he makes a decision. He saves his life. He wins over Bridge 4. He changes the lives of Bridge 4 forever. But yeah, a bunch of light eyes die, which he doesn't care about. And then a bunch of other bridgemen die, which he does care about. But from our vantage point, and if we're going to be consistent, both have value. The bridgemen and the light eyes both have value. So he gets a lot of people killed. So he made the wrong decision. His decision killed a lot of people. But he was acting out of what he knew was best for him and his men that he took a duty to protect. Took on a duty to protect. Right. It's true. It's tough. It's 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 tough to make calls like that, but I think you make a really valid point is you need to you you only can be with within some realm of reason, you can only be judged by the information you had at the time. But I think that this is also important is to try to be aware of what you don't know. Oh yeah. It's it's it it's an endless thing because there's three types of knowledge and then I want to hear your take on Kaladin and where he's at because this side quest is kind of like evolved. Uh, oh, yeah. It, there, you know what you know. You know what you don't know. I don't know thermal thermal dynamics. Not not really. I don't know how a plane 
flies. I don't know aerodynamics. I don't know how exactly electricity works. I know things that I don't know. And then the third part type of knowledge is you don't know what you don't know. And so sometimes you can walk into a situation thinking you know that you know, and then you will get new information in the moment. And then you realize, oh, no, I have no idea that these things were going on. Kaladin steps into a moment where he goes, oh, no. As they did the side carry, as he saved his men, he, he looks back and he goes, oh, storms. I've just gotten hundreds of men killed because I mm-hmm. ruined the plateau assault because he was too smart for the, for the suffering that he was put into. And that got a bunch of people killed. Now, I don't think that's his fault necessarily because, like you said, he didn't know the information. But at some point, you're also still accountable for the information you did have and your actions that you took. And so now he's strung up to die. So lead us back into Bridge 4 and kind of this, your take on, on him, and we'll end that side quest that devolved and evolved and et cetera, et cetera. So the end of this section for our read of The Way of Kings, we find Kaladin, who's just realized that he's killed a bunch of people, or his actions got a bunch of people killed. And at the same time, he's won the respect and the loyalty of his men, for sure. And so Gaz and Lamoril come riding up and they're like, what are you doing? What did you do? And so Calvin takes the blame and says, well, sorry, Bright Lord, we were, I was trying to save me and my team. And because Lamoril and Gaz were plotting against Cal and Cal kind of knew it, he manipulates them into not killing him because he says, if you kill me, Nobody will find out that it was just me. You will be blamed. Because in Alethi culture, the bright eyes always will take the, the, the blame. They're, they're held accountable at the end. And so Lamoril knows this and decides just to beat him up. And while, while he's knocked out, uh, Kaladin, he's actually strung up uh, facing eastward to, to face the high storm that's coming. But Lamoril is executed because... Uh, because of this uh, cultural norm or this religious norm or whatever, yeah. uh, the light eyes, the bright lords will be held accountable. So he's executed because at the end of the day, he's the one who's responsible for Cal's actions, according to the Alethi. And Kaladin is going to be made an example. And he so he's strung up to face the high storm. And uh, I found this two sentences at the end of the chapter just beautifully written. So, staring at the raging, blustering, churning wave of wind-pushed water and debris, Calden felt as if he were watching the end of the world descend upon him. He took a deep breath, the pain in his ribs forgotten, as the storm wall crossed the lumber yard in a flash and slammed into him. And the chapter ends. Yeah. Right before this, his men come out to meet with him and to mm. say goodbye to him and... He gives Rock and Tefet something to tell the men. They're like, well, come out and uh, come out after the storm. And if I'm alive, then, you know, then everything's as it should be mm-hmm. or something like that. I, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. yeah. And, then he, and then he accepts his faith. Fate. Excuse me. He accepts his fate. Mm. Yeah. He tells Rock and Teft and he goes, after the storm, come out and look, look at me. And, and uh, they go back inside and. Teft is muttering under his breath that he himself is a coward and Syl is not happy with Cal. She's like, that was a lie. And he's like, 
No, it's basically a wager on the end game or the long game where if they come out and I'm dead, they'll go, ah, we knew he was going to die. But if they come out and I'm alive, it gives them hope. And frankly, when you're at a state in life where you are just trying to survive, and I think we talked about this in an earlier episode, you need hope. You need something. You need purpose. I think purpose and hope are tied together where purpose gives you the opportunity to set your eyes on the horizon and say that there is a hope for a better time, even when the world is crashing down on you, whatever that looks like for your circumstances. And so, yeah, Kaladin, when I first read this, I was like, oh man, he's going to kill this character that we just grew half a book. He's dead. That's, that's it. And I was like, well, what's he going to, I mean, maybe we switch characters. Maybe we, you know, maybe Rock and Teft end up um, taking over because we've grown enough with them that, that, you know, something could happen. It's just a, it's just a, it's a tough place to end, but I mean, yeah, go for it. I was listening to it on audiobook. So the way I prepare for this, for this podcast is I listen to it on audiobook while I'm driving, then I'll go back in my Kindle. And so when I, when I was, when I heard this, like, I was like, wow. And 34 was the, the end point for this, uh, for this episode. So I stopped listening there and then i read ahead a little bit later but i stopped listening there and i was like wow what a way to end the chapter i tried to yeah i tried to pick chapter segments that would do best to make our reading segments have cliffhangers to to draw us back in i some of them are better than others but uh things are picking up again so cal might be dead cal might be dead because they're He's in the middle of a hurricane, tied by his feet to a roof of a building, and he has a couple broken ribs and other injuries and a concussion. So, yeah. So here we are at the end of a end of this uh, portion. Way of Kings, part four, side quest, episode nine. If I got my count right, I think so. I think yeah, it's episode that's episode nine. That's it. That's uh, that's the episode. Next time we're looking at another ten-ish chapters where we look at chapters thirty. 5 through 45 and next episode will be halfway halfway through the book uh halfway through our journey halfway i'm still i haven't gotten confirmation yet for the fun thing that i want to do on episode 10 so waiting for that to happen but really looking forward to pulling it off because i think it'll be a fun surprise for you for me for well it's not gonna be a surprise for me because i'm planning it but for you for the listeners yeah, so tell us in the comments what are we went off on some some weird side quests. So oh my gosh, yep. Uh, yeah, that's that's I take full responsibility for my actions on that one because I definitely led us down that path. But what did you think about this section of the Way of Kings? What did you think about our side quests? What should we read next? All of the questions. Are you are you having fun in the Way of Kings? Are you not reading the way of kings and instead just doing it through ancillary uh ancillary ancillary through us whatever anyway that's uh um, that works i approve okay all right great it sounds better in russian <laughs> <laughs> all right catch you on the next one all right goodbye good people